We're going to be in John chapter 6, the first I am statement of seven that Jesus makes in the gospel of John. Let's pray and then we'll get started. I was only like seven minutes over time in the earlier service, so maybe I can do better this time. We'll see. (sighs) Heavenly Father, thank you so much for everything that you are doing. You are good. Father, we are here this morning because you are good. We're not here because we're good. We know we're not good. We need you. Thank you for providing a place we can gather together in your name and for your glory uh, to, to hear about you and your, to hear your gospel, for it to sink more deeply into our hearts, for us to celebrate and to worship you for your work that you have done. We love you, Jesus. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. All the Christians said, Amen. All right, rarely, rarely is there ever a time where, you know, when we started planning campuses, things got a lot more rigid around here, and the preaching calendar uh, is one of those things that we just had to really fine-tune, and we're like two years planned out, and as we plant more campuses, you know, uh, that's just the way it is. I'm I'm not that great of a structure person. That may surprise you. But we need a lot of structure around here as the church grows and becomes more complex. Uh, Rarely is, since we are planned two years out, rarely is it that I get to bring something to the table from my own personal studies. Now, I study hard for uh, preaching the Bible and for, for these sermons, but rare, you know, I also have a personal life, and, and I need to grow, and I need to be uh, fed, and so I've got a personal Bible. Rarely do they ever intertwine, but today, by God's grace, I get to talk to you a little bit about what I'm learning personally before we get to John chapter 6 and the first I am statement of Christ because there's an entire chapter in your study got on an introduction to the gospel of John so that would have taken 20 minutes anyway so I can use that to talk about the introduction to the gospel of John and talk about some stuff that I'm learning which I think is awesome if you haven't picked up a book recently. Uh, One I can suggest to you is a book by A.W. Pink called Why Four Gospels. It's a great book. I just read it last week. Let's talk a little bit about it as we introduce ourselves to John and what John is trying to communicate to his audience through the gospel of John. Four is an important number in the Bible. There's a lot of important numbers in the Bible, 12, 10, 7, 3, right? uh, For the Jewish people, numbers have meaning. They are symbolic. Uh, They they communicate something other than just uh, an actual number. The number four is no different. So there are four Gospels in the New Testament that all portray Jesus to us in a different way. Uh, They take a unique characteristic from the life of Christ and they portray him to us uh, to convey that unique characteristic. So that's why we have four Gospels. It was actually prophesied in the Old Testament that there would be four Gospels because Christ was going to communicate four big ideas about who he is as our Lord and our Savior. 
I can prove this to you by going to Exodus chapter 26, beginning in verse 31. But before we get there, let me just talk about the number four a little bit. Four, the the meaning and the symbolism of the number four is it is the number of the earth. It represents the earth. How does it represent the earth? If you think about it just briefly, there are four points of a compass. If you're ever talking to that idiot atheist, sorry. (laughs) He's like, the Bible says the world is flat. You guys are dumb for believing the Bible. And they'll quote a verse that God calls the four angels from the four corners of the earth. See, the Bible says, well, it's dumb. You shouldn't be Christian. The Bible's wrong. Just look at him and say, look, you're the idiot here. The Bible doesn't say the world. It doesn't say the four corners. But what are the four corners? They're the four points of the compass. North, south, east, west. God calls his people from all over this world to gather together to be his people. There are four points. Number four is special. It signifies this world, the earth. There are four seasons, right? Springtime. New life. Martin Luther famously said the resurrection of Christ is written on every leaf of springtime, right? New vision, new hope, new joy. Uh, Just life happens in spring. If you want to know about spring, or I should say if you don't know about spring, we can teach you. It's called working in one of our kids' environments. Spring is wonderful. Spring leads to summer. How many of you are in your 20s in here? That's called summer. (laughs) Right? It is the time. You're just high on everything. The sun is shining. The water is cool. Everything is good. That is summer. We write movies and books about summer because we remember, those of us who are older, we remember how good summer was and how we wish we could get back there, but some of us are in fall. <laughs> if you're in your 40s, let me see you. Give some love. This is a time our leaves start falling off the tree. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're looking in the mirror for that bald spot, all that, all that stuff. Fall is reflection. That's why people love fire pits and Oktoberfest beers, right, loggers? It's fall. Sit back, reflect on life, on, on what is happening. And then you got winter. Winter is that season of the earth where we understand all things come to an end for us in this corruptible flesh. Winter is a time of of death, of passing on to the next spring. Again, resurrection should be in our hearts, the resurrection of Christ. Anyway, number four is important. (laughs) There are four gospels. We're going to get there, and we can go on and on. Uh, There are four elemental Uh, Four elements in this world, four elemental spirits, as Paul calls them in Colossians. Uh, Earth, wind, and fire. Any fans? Yeah, well, they missed one. (laughs) Earth, wind, fire, and air. All you airbenders in here, we can't forget about air, right? Come on, there's got to be like 20 geeks in here. We can go on and on. The four soils. 
the fourth clause of the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on the earth, right? There four is just this number that shows up all the, and it symbolizes the earth. Now, let's go to Exodus chapter 26. And you shall make a veil, underline that. Now, we all know, and, and just keep that up because we're going to actually go through these verses we all understand that there is a tabernacle that God commands Moses to build. It is uh, still outside the camp. It's going to become central in the camp uh, at one point. But it, the tabernacle represents the place where God dwells among his people. There is an court where the people gather to worship and to sacrifice there is a uh, when you walk into the tent uh, which later becomes the temple there is a place and there are furnishings we're going to talk through all that when we get into Exodus after this series but that's where the priests uh, do their work but there is a veil separating where the priests work and the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant lays. The Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and faces melting, skin melting off faces, right? That's the Ark of the Covenant that represents where God, only the high priest once a year could go into, past this veil, into the Holy of Holies, the actual very presence of God, where God's presence dwelt among his people. A veil had to cover the area from where the priests actually worked and the holy of holies. Now this veil is not, don't think like a bed sheet because it's, it's much larger than that. In fact, uh, Josephus says it's almost four inches thick. Uh, the Bible says it was the thickness of the hand of a man. Uh, so this is a thick curtain that is hung it took 300 priests according to Josephus to take the veil down for its annual they cleaned it a couple times a year it took 300 priests to take this thing down this is a huge thing separating man from the presence of God and you shall make this is God speaking to Moses you shall make a veil of blue purple Scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, that's why those four colors, you can't escape the number four. Uh, those four colors all have symbolism we don't have time to get into today. But there are four colors that make up this veil, and it shall be made with cherubim. There, we know there are four of them in each corner of the veil. It will be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Now underline cherubim and go to the next uh, verse 32. And you shall hang it on four pillars... Of acacia, that's wood, overlaid with gold. Uh, by the way, that, that wood there, just again, you can't escape the deity of Christ either, which is the point we're getting to. Uh, wood, the humanity of Christ, overlaid with gold, the deity of Christ. Uh, you shall hang it on four pillars. So this veil is going to be hung, separating God's presence from mankind. And it's going to be hung on four pillars. Now, what is this veil? We know what this veil is because Paul, well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, chapter 10, there's some Bible students in here. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10 real quick. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, what did the veil symbolize? A separation between the holy presence of God and mankind. Only the high priest once a year could enter. What is that veil? Right. We have confidence now to be in the presence of God. That veil was rent in two. We may get into that later. Probably not. Didn't in the first service. 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy place, the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is the veil that was in the temple, that is through his flesh. What is the veil? What does it represent? It represents the very flesh of Christ hung on four pillars representing the earth as we know it, as we live in it now. So we got the flesh of Christ hung on four pillars, embroidered with cherubim. Go to Ezekiel really quick. Let's talk about these cherubim. Anybody having fun yet? We'll start the sermon in a second, I promise. Look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel's probably the book that most of you have never read. <laughs> it's a tough one. I mean, there's wheels within wheels and guys laying around by dung. and just, It's a crazy book. <laughs> but we can learn about the cherubim here. Uh, and the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures. Underline that. The living creatures that I saw by the Chabar Canal. Verse 16. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings, we know there are six of them according to Revelation, uh, to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. Verse 17. And when they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. So we got the flesh of Christ hung on four pillars embroidered with these cherubim. We know the veil is the flesh of Christ, but what are these living creatures? Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. Quickly on your screen, don't turn there. Verse 6 and 7. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 7. And thank you guys for leaving this up. If you'll leave it up uh, like you did last service, it's super helpful to me. Uh, the first living creature, there's four of them, embroidered on the flesh of Christ. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So four living creatures, each represented by a different animal, representing something important about, because what are they embroidered on? The veil, which is the very flesh of Christ, hung on four pillars. Why are there four gospels? Because there are four big ideas that God wants you to understand about his son, Jesus Christ. Four gospels written each portraying Christ to us in a different way, necessary for us in our full understanding of who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Who is Matthew? He's a tax collector that everybody hates. Jesus shows up, taps him on the shoulder and says, follow me. And he leaves his money-changing station and he follows Jesus, becomes a disciple. Who does Matthew write his gospel to? He writes it to the Jews, the very people he betrayed. He was a Jew, but he joined Rome, taxed the Jews. They hated him. He was a betrayer. But he writes to the people that he betrayed to desperately tell them about Jesus, the lion. Who is he? 
Why does Matthew begin with a genealogy, a very specific, pointed genealogy? It's different from Luke's genealogy. It's not different. It's it's similar. But Luke adds a lot more information because he's a doctor and he's just technical like that. Matthew puts his genealogy to prove one specific point to the Jewish people. Your king has come. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Messiah. You can't escape it. He's the only way. That you are going to find salvation. He is king of the Jews. This is all Matthew is trying to convey to his Jewish audience that he's writing to. Then comes Mark. Mark's a, Mark's a little guy. Mark Spud Webb. Remember Atlanta Hawks way back? He's a little dude, but he can jump and sit in the... I'm getting off track. Mark comes writing for Peter. He's Peter's secretary, and his very short gospel, just the facts, is what we called that series when we went through the gospel of Mark. He just hits the highlights of the ministry. Who is he writing to? He's writing to the Romans, all those living in the, by the way, there are four world empires. We can, we can do four all day long. America's not one of them, just so you know. Now, we're number one. But we're not a world empire either. So there's only four. Uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greeks, and then Rome. That's why when you get into Revelation, I'm getting off track. Mark's writing to the Romans. Who does he write? How does he convey who Jesus is to the Roman Empire? Face of an ox. Who is the ox? He is the servant. The ox is the beast of burden. Jesus in Mark is presented as Matthew's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark is the great servant of humanity because God came to serve you, us, the world. Luke comes along, the, the physician, the doctor, writing the largest and the most technical. If we ever get to Luke, which we may, that's a three-year series, no doubt. Most of the chapters in there are 70 verses long. Who is Luke writing to? Luke, most scholars will tell you, is Greek by, nat- by his nature. By the way, there's four different people groups according to Scripture. Uh, I skipped all that in the beginning, so it's coming back now. But we're going to skip it. Luke is writing to Greeks. And how does he present Christ? The face of a man. Jesus is human Flesh, the incarnation, he becomes flesh. He is fully human. We see his humanity in Luke. Everything. Now, now you, Jesus didn't get the same phone calls you get. Jesus, there are some situations in your life that Jesus may not have experienced. I mean, he wasn't married, so he never got in a fight with his wife. He never had to spank kids. But he, every human emotion... Everything we face as humans, we see in the humanity of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus knows what it means to be up late at night. Jesus knows what it is to have hunger and thirst. Jesus experienced life in human flesh so that he could be that great high priest that leads us into the presence of God. That's what Luke is doing. Jesus, face of a man. And then there's 
John. Ah, oh, finally to the point. <laughs> Who is John? John is one of the three best friends Jesus has in this world. Jesus picked, there, as we're going to see, there are thousands of people following Jesus at different times in his ministry. But he picked 12 guys to be his disciples. And three of those guys we call his inner circle. They got to go with Jesus when the rest of the 12 didn't get to go. On the Mount of Transfiguration, deeper into the garden uh, at Gethsemane. There, those three show up. John's one of these three that show up. When no one else is around Jesus in, in desperate times, in his time of need, and in times of glory as well. Who is John writing to? We call this the universal gospel because uh, John is writing to all of the New Testament church, which again, from last week, if you remember, Jesus changed the world and the church was the first place on earth where all kinds of different People begin to gather together to worship God. That's why the New Testament was written because there were so many cultures of all these people are different. Some eat meat and some don't eat meat and some drink wine and others don't drink wine. There's all these different things and, and they were trying to learn to work together. But the New Testament church is the first great melting pot. Right? It's where no matter who you were or where you come from, you were accepted as a brother, as a sister in Christ Jesus. That's why this gospel is universal. It's the New Testament church. Women are valued in the church. Children are valued in the church. Those two groups didn't have any value in ancient society. They were treated as property, not people. New Testament church said, nope, you're people in Christ, sisters, friends. It was all people's kinds, colors, tongues gathered together. That's who John is writing to. What does he want them to know about Jesus? The eagle. Eagle flies higher than any other living thing. It goes far, far above. Eagle represents in Scripture deity. What is John wanting to communicate with us? That Jesus is Luke. He's man. Look at his humanity. John, he is God. Jesus isn't just man, just servant, just king of the Jews and promised Messiah in Matthew. He is also God. Chapter 1, God in flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. John shows us, this gospel shows us the deity of Christ. We're going to see that deity come out in seven huge statements that Jesus makes about himself. Before we get to John 6, go to Exodus chapter 3. Because these I am statements have context. Jesus is building off of something when he makes these big seven statements. Just so you know, the next seven weeks, this is big Jesus stuff. Big Jesus series. How many of you need a small Jesus in your life? No, we need big Jesus. You need to see him bigger than you've ever seen him before. And that's my prayer for all of us as we study this. And it all comes out of God's revelation of himself way back in Exodus chapter 3. Now, God, uh, Genesis 1 begins in the beginning, God 
Right? God's been around seven days. Seven's an important number, too. Seven days of creation. All that stuff happens in Genesis. But God's fixing to do something in this people that he has made through his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His people are in bondage 400 years in Egypt. They're, they're slaves to another people. God is going to deliver them because people don't stay in bondage when God is their father. Amen? It's called deliverance. It's called freedom in Christ. God chooses this guy, Moses, who's a fugitive on the lamb, hiding out in the backside of the desert because he killed an Egyptian. God comes to him. By the way, just so you know, God never, if I just get good enough, God will love me. God never uses good people. He always uses turds. Sorry, I'm one of them. <laughs> always uses turds. <laughs> Moses is a big turd. God said to Moses, th three Jews just turned off their computer because <laughs> Moses is their guy, right? Moses is their guy. God said to Moses, I am, I'm going to deliver my people. Moses, I want you to go. Deliver my people. Say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses is like, who am I supposed to tell him to send me? I'm talking to a bush that's on fire. I got no idea. What's your name? Who are you? God reveals himself to Moses by saying, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Now this is the holy, proper name for God. I am, always have been, always will be, self-existent, self-sustaining, all-powerful, all-knowing, need nothing. God, I am, God says, is my name. It's the name in Hebrew. It's only consonants. Y-H-W-H. -H. The Jews were scared to death of this name. They wouldn't say it. They actually believed. Because if you try to pronounce it, I mean, it's hard to pronounce Y-H-W-H. -H. It's, it's like the sound of breath. And most Jewish scholars would tell you God wrote his name I mean, he breathed into us and gave us life, and he wrote his name on our breath. When we, when we breathe, we proclaim and worship the God who created us. They were so scared of this word, they added the consonant, or the, the vowels from the word Adonai, which means Lord, to the four consonants. Creating the name Yahweh, they would refer to the I am as Yahweh. This is how God reveals himself. By the way, and I don't have time for this, but if you ever hear the word Jehovah, just know that's wrong. I mean, even the world knows people who use that name are cults. Secular people know the Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. You know that, right? Jehovah was a word that wasn't even... It's a mispronunciation of the name of God that didn't show up until the 18th. If anybody shows up today and says, hey, what Christians have never known before, I got new information, here it is, we finally figured it out, just know that's a cult. <laughs> they're they're going to empty your bank account, and they're going to sleep with your wife. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> that's what cults do. <laughs> Off track. But I love this service. You guys are always so much fun. <laughs> All right, John 6. 
So who is God? How does he reveal himself? I am Yahweh. John 6, starting in verse 22. Now, two big things. Man, we're, we have not even started the sermon. Two big ideas you need to understand as we move into John 6, verse 22. Two huge miracles have just occurred. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people, which is more like most scholars believe 20,000 people because only the men were counted at that time. So you got 5,000 men Probably their wives, probably children among them. This is a huge crowd. Even if it's just 5,000, it's a huge crowd. Especially knowing Jesus fed them with a little boy's sack lunch. Right? Not, he took a sack lunch, fed all these people, and had 12 baskets left over. This is a miracle. And wouldn't you know it, P Peter is that disciple that we love to hate. I mean, it's a love-hate thing with Peter because he just, he's so boneheaded like all of us are and he just doesn't get it. But he's right there and, and when you're reading these stories, this little boy comes up to the apostle Peter and he's like, I know this isn't much, but I want to give this to Jesus. I want to help you guys feed because Jesus said, we're going to feed these people. The disciples are like, send them away. It's getting late. Let them get home. Let them feed themselves. Jesus said, nope, we're going to feed them. And a little boy comes up to Peter and says, this isn't much, but here's what I got. It's five loaves of bread and two fish. And you know what Peter says to this little boy? He says, what do you think that's going to do? Well, I mean, what a jerk. God uses turds, I'm telling you. What is that? What do you think this is going to do with all these people? Here's a here's big idea, four points. Because guess what? We don't have much to give, and we don't have much to offer. But the little that we have, if we will just get it into the hands of Jesus, he multiplies, and he feeds the multitudes. We don't have to worry about our, the little we have to offer. All we have to worry about is getting to Jesus. It's all about Jesus, more of Jesus. 2022, amen? Jesus takes these Little fish and little loaves, and he multiplies, and he feeds the multitude. Big miracle. Then Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat and cross the sea. But Jesus doesn't get in the boat with them. So they're three or four miles into the sea, crossing to the other side, and where's Jesus? Uh, I don't know, but who's that coming? Jesus is walking on the water to meet them in the middle of the sea. That's a big miracle. I know you've seen David Blaine do it with his... You know, acrylic, clear, you know, walkway in the pool. Jesus didn't have that four miles into the sea. He walked on water. And the disciples are marveling. What kind, what manner of man is this? Jesus is in complete and total control over all things in this world. He's not like, what was his name, Zod and Superman? You remember that? He walked on water and... Never mind. So two big things have just happened. Chapter 6, verse 22. Let's begin the sermon now. <laughs> on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other... These people that had been fed by Jesus, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had, only, there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. 
Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So Jesus is gone, his disciples got in a boat, let's all cross the sea and see if they are over there, which they were because Jesus walked on the water to meet his disciples. When they found him, verse 25, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, you got thousands of people following Jesus, and what are they calling him? They're calling him Rabbi, which is a respected word in the Jewish community at the time. It meant teacher. Have you ever wondered why the sons of Zebedee, why Simon, Peter, why they, when Jesus came up on the beach and said, follow me, they dropped everything? I mean, they dropped their nets, left their father sitting in a boat. Their life, their economic status, how they provided for their families, they dropped everything to follow Jesus. You ever wondered what in the world? Well, there's two things. Number one, Jesus had just performed a miracle. Don't forget that. They saw Jesus perform a miracle, so when he said, follow me, they were like, yep. But number two, the greatest honor of a Jewish man's life in the first century was to be the disciple of a rabbi. They were incredibly respected men, and not just anybody could be a disciple. You had to be the best of the best of the best. You had to go through three levels of the Jewish education system. Not mo Most people didn't make it through level one. They would get to the end of level one and they would go be an apprentice of their father, just do whatever their father did because they couldn't make it to the second level or the third level for that matter. To be a rabbi, I mean, for a rabbi to say, follow me was a big deal because the rabbi had to believe that when he was dead, you could do what he did. That's why they would say, that's why they had disciples. The Jewish historian says, a good disciple covered himself in the dust of the feet of their rabbi. It's highly honored position. When Jesus follow me, they drop their nets, they get out of the boats, they leave their, their father, and they follow Jesus because he was. The crowds believed, teacher, you have something to say. We want to follow you. That's why he had 12 disciples. Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly. You King James people, you ones that have the right Bible. It's the Bible that Peter and Paul had. <laughs> I got a grandfather that is still alive, 96 years old. King James only. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Oh. <laughs> I grew up Pentecostal, I know. What, what does this mean? Jesus says, I tell you the truth. What I am saying to you is true. It's a, it's a check I'm giving you that will cash when you get to the bank. Mark it. This is true. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus knows the crowds are fickle. Jesus knows I mean, he's going to get into some hard teaching. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not part of me. 
He knows the crowds are, are there one day and gone the next. Because so many, isn't it true? Come on. So many seek God for all the wrong reasons. What I hope the joy of these next seven weeks are going to be is we see Jesus for who He is and we want Him. We don't want the benefits that come. I mean, come on. It's, it's an easy straw man to start talking about the prosperity gospel, health and wealth. There, there's people follow Jesus for all the wrong reasons all the time. If I, I mean, I had a guy one time write a check for several thousand dollars and, and hand it to me and say, I'm going to give this to you in faith that God's going to help me win the lottery. I just handed that check right back, and I was like, nope. <laughs> You're not going to win, man. That's not, that's not how this works. Everybody wants the benefits of knowing God. But God is the real prize. To know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He is. You're never going to figure this thing out. I was talking to a young man after service. You know, we're, we're always falling in these, in, the, in these ditches, some legalism, some licentiousness. We're always going to fall into those ditches if we're looking at ourselves and what we're doing and we're reflecting on what we do with, with who he is. We're, we're never going to get it right until our eyes are fixed and only fixed. If you want joy, real joy in your life, you've got to know who Jesus is. You've got to fix your eyes upon him. If your eyes are anywhere else, it's always going to be the teeter-totter of life, up and down, left and right. Eyes on Jesus, knowing who he is. Right, Even in the harshest seasons of life, joy and life abundant. It's who he is. Jesus, I know why you're following me. You got fed. You got a free meal. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus doesn't want to just feed you today. He came to give eternal life, eternal satisfaction, eternal sustenance. Jesus isn't a welfare check. He's the Son of God come in glory to provide everything you need forever. Not just to get us by one day. We think so temporary. God is eternal. Look with me, verse, where are we at? 28. Actually, no, back to 27. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, everybody in the seals were incredibly important in the ancient world. If you were anybody, if you owned lands, if you had wealth, if you were anybody of any importance, you didn't have to travel everywhere to have a bunch of business meetings. They didn't have Zoom back then. What they had is servants. And they would give their words and they would stamp it with their seal and they would give it to a messenger and the messenger would go. And the messenger is a nobody from nowhere, but if they had that seal, what they said were the words that could be trusted 
according to the master. The seal represented the one in charge. Jesus comes with uh, the seal of God, which, by the way, just so you know, this means he is God. He is one with God. Go back to chapter 5 really quick. Look at verse 18 and 19. Already the Jewish people want to kill Jesus for this very reason. Because he's sealed by the Father. Father's hand upon him. They are one, according to John 17. We won't get there today, but look at verses 18 and 19 in chapter 5. This was why the Jews, he's got crowds following, but the Jews already wanted to kill him. They were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father. And that makes himself equal with God. The seal of God is upon Christ, according to verse 27. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? I've only got five minutes. I don't feel like I've even started. If you're sitting in the room, what do we have to do? What do we have to do? Be connected, to, to get through the veil, to get to God's presence. What do we have to do? The Bible has a very quick and short answer for you. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you, underline it, check off 10 boxes every day of good deeds to your neighbor. You go to church, you tithe 10%, right? Here's the worksheet. What do we have to do? Believe. It's not your work you got to believe in the work of another. Believe in him whom God has sent. Who is he who has been sent? Jesus. He lived the perfect life that we have not. He died in our place for our sins. Believe. That word believe, faith, sola fida, right? We're, we're solas around here. Our kids, your kids, if they've been coming to student ministry over the past three years. They've got like four out of the five sola shirts. They're wearing around town, right? Faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. There's three of the five. Boy, it got quiet in here. Believe. What does it mean to believe? What is this faith? It means to put all your weight upon. Let me ask you a question. Some of you are, you're you're sitting in the chair that is called Christ, but you haven't lifted up your feet yet. You haven't put all your weight in Christ. And that's what Christ wants you to do. What do I do? What do I do? Believe, put all your weight upon that one person in human history who claimed what nobody else has ever claimed, to be God in human flesh. Let's read. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? Okay, well, if we believe in you. Give us a sign. Jesus, I just, I just fed 5,000 people with a sack lunch. But Jesus knows the wicked and perverse generation asks for more signs, more signs. You don't need more signs. We have everything we need to be saved, eternal, to know Christ 
and his crucifixion and resurrection. We have everything we need. Jesus said, what sign do you do? That we may believe you. What work do you perform? Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna, underline that, in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You guys remember that old Oprah commercial? You remember when you had cable? It's hard to remember them. I love bread. Remember? No? Come on. 945, you're more fun than that. I eat bread every day. The people are, you fed us yesterday. Our fathers ate the manna, the bread that came down from heaven. Imagine walking out of your tent and you don't have to do any work. There's no food around. And then you're wondering how you're going to survive in the wilderness and you walk out of your tent every morning and there's bread on the ground. That's what God does for his people. He provides a way where there is no way. Our fathers ate the bread. What are you going to do, Jesus? Verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, again, verily, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven. To which Moses is in heaven saying, thank you. Been telling them forever. People always attach to, to others. It's Jesus. That's your attachment. It's not Moses. It's not a religious leader. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It wasn't Moses that fed you, who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the real bread is he whom God sends who's come down from heaven. Look at verse 38 quick. For I have come, Jesus, I have come down from heaven. Listen, this is, this is powerhouse stuff right here. No other human being on planet earth has ever claimed this statement. There's a lot of people that have said, I've been called up to heaven, or I've had a vision of heaven, my 90 seconds in heaven, I met Grandpa Joe in heaven. There's a lot of people that, that claim to have gone up to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem right now uh, is a place uh, commemorating where Muhammad claimed to have been called up into heaven. Paul, in uh, the, his letter to Corinth, his second letter in our Bible to Corinth, says, I, I've been I was called up to the, I've seen the third heaven. Right There have been those who have claimed to go up, but no one has ever claimed to go come down. What is Jesus saying? Pre-eternal, pre-existent, I was and I came down from heaven. I am the true bread that God gives to sustain his people. I have come down from heaven. This is who, this is this is life-shattering, life-altering, ground-breaking statement Christ makes. Let's move to it, verse 34. They said to him, well, give us this bread. Well, that's awesome. We want it. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am. He goes all the way back to how God reveals himself in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses. 
And in the Greek, it's ego me, but it's, it's, it directly correlates with the Hebrew for I am. This is an intentional, direct statement that Jesus is making. Don't ever let anybody tell you, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. His followers made that up three, four hundred years later. Nope. Jesus said, I am. Just like God said from the bush to Moses, I am. Jesus says, I am. Eternal. Self-sustaining. All-powerful. All the... I am. God is I am. I ontologically from my being, my core. I am. And this first statement, the bread of life. Everybody's looking for a free lunch. But you always need another lunch after the free one. Jesus is the eternal bread. The only one who can and will sustain you. Not just throughout this life throughout eternity as well. For God so loved he gave. If we believe we have eternal life. Let me get, let me get through one more point with you because we just all need some assurance. Verse 36. Actually, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Underline that. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I got good news. Jesus is God who became flesh. He did the work that was necessary to satisfy the wrath of God because of the sins that we have committed. Our work now is only to fix our eyes upon him and to trust him, to put all our weight, all our faith, our belief in him and his work. And if that is you this morning, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never be cast away. God's work is Forever and all we need. We will not be lost in Christ Jesus and his work. It's a little P at the end of Tulip. The perseverance of the saints. You need to know your salvation does not rest in your actions. It rests in the action of God on your behalf. And when your faith is in Christ Jesus, you will not be cast away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's truly, truly. This check that you have given us is going to cash. You are truth. We couldn't even know truth if you had not spoken your truth. Thank you 
for being true. And thank you for being our God, Jesus. May we see you for who you are. May we see you bigger than we've ever seen you. Lead and guide us in our lives. In Jesus' name, every Christian said, amen.